When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. From 1936 to 1967, the Negro Motorist Green Book listed businesses and places, state by state and city by city, where African-American travelers could find welcoming services and safe places to rest, eat, sleep, enjoy themselves, even buy gasoline and use the bathroom. While there were competitors, the Green Book as it was commonly known, became the definitive guide for black travelers seeking to, in the words of the guide's creator, Victor Hugo Green, travel without aggravations and embarrassments. I'm Alvin Hall, host and creator of the podcast series, Driving the Green Book. Associate producer Janae Woods-Weber and I took a road trip in 2019 from Detroit to New Orleans, over 2,000 miles, to visit locations listed in the Green Book. Along the way, we talked to people who patronized the businesses in the guide, who lived in the surrounding neighborhoods, and who drove the local streets and highways of the United States during Jim Crow and segregation. We gathered first-person recollections and stories from some of the last living witnesses for whom the Green Book was an essential survival tool. In this bonus episode of the Driving the Green Book podcast, Janae and I talked to two women whose families used the guide and who were eyewitnesses to the period of U.S. history presented in my 10-episode podcast, and my book, Driving the Green Book, a road trip through the living history of Black resistance, published by Harper One. One of the many moving joys of giving talks around the United States about my podcast series and book is meeting people who share with me their own or their family's experiences with the Negro Motorist Green Book. Each generously shared memory deepens my knowledge about the guide and enriches my appreciation for the many reasons it was the source of safety and peace of mind for African-American travelers. Dr. Dolores Mercedes Franklin, a retired professional in dentistry from Washington, D.C., and Mrs. Cynthia Campbell Moten of New York shared their experiences with me and Janae in a studio in New York. First, Mercedes told Janae and me about her Green Book experiences. Both of my parents were born in Louisiana. Then they moved north for various reasons. So we did have that necessity of traveling to the South during the Jim Crow era. My father met my mother at, at a graduation of the first class of Dillard University, and he offered her a ride in his car. 
So they got into his 1938, I think it was a Chevrolet, and they drove from New Orleans to Philadelphia in 1939. So I'm certain that he would have had to use the Green Book with the passengers that he had and with the distance that he had to travel. When did you first hear about the Green Book? I first heard about the Green Book in elementary school. My first time with a recollection was in the 1950s. I saw them sitting at the dining room table with a book, and they were looking very intensely at this book and talking about the various places, and we knew what they were doing, that they were trying to select where we could stay in advance. Where they selected where we could stay is very interesting because it was the A.G. Gaston Motel in Birmingham which was new, was newly built, and it was famous then, but then it became infamous after it was bombed in 1963, and Dr. Martin Luther King had just left. So it was the headquarters for the Birmingham campaign during the Civil Rights Movement. You mentioned that you saw your parents sitting down with the Green Book and planning out the travels. You also witnessed segregation with your own eyes. Did your parents ever have an explicit conversation with you about why they were using the Green Book? Because my father had been director of research for the Democratic National Committee, we had quite a few discussions about what was going on in this country and about race relations. We had heard about a little bit about this, but we certainly knew that we were segregated in D.C., but they were segregated more than we were. And so we were warned that it would be more segregated. We were warned, for example, that the public transportation was segregated, that you had to sit behind a sign. So to tell you a quick story, we got on the trolley in New Orleans with my grandfather, and he moved the sign up forward so that we could sit in the area that would previously have been white. And we were stunned that you could do this, that you had the flexibility if there were seats available to move the sign up. So this was something that everyone had uh, accommodated themselves to, segregation. Did you consider that an act of resistance? I certainly did because I didn't know that you could move the sign. It was impressive to us that he moved the sign. Signs with words like colored or colored only were commonplace on public transportation all across the South during segregation and Jim Crow. On a street bus or street car, the colored section was always at the back. Moving such signs forward took courage because you did not know what reaction your action would provoke. Dolores grew up with another family story of bravery in the face of segregation. In 1939, my mother was taking a bus from Jackson, Mississippi, to New Orleans. So she waited in the, in the bus station, and every bus filled up with white people. And the next bus came and filled up with white people. And the next bus filled up. So finally, defiant, my mother got on the next bus. So, of course, by that time, the bus driver said to her, he said, well, you can sit on the wheel cover. She said, no, no. So he said that he would call the police. And she said at that time, she knew that she would never make it alive. None of the black people who were sitting there waiting to get on the bus said anything while this was taking place. So we knew this about our mother growing up. So this is how you, you, you can pass it on to the children, how you're going to deal with segregation. She said to the bus driver, I'm as good as anybody else on this bus, and I'm not getting off. Those were her words in 1939. Growing up in this world where you were segregated in D.C. and more segregated in the South, did you ever travel farther north. 
and experienced the segregation in other parts of the North. We actually traveled to New York City in the 50s, and uh, I don't recall any segregation in New York City. I recall going to beaches. The joy was riding in the front car of the subway. We did that, and going to all the monuments. But my recollection as a child was not the same as it is for Washington, D.C. At one time, we went to a restaurant, and the white people were sitting on one side, and we had to go stand on the other side. So that was within my lifetime. Mercedes, given your personal history and your parents' and grandparents' and other relatives' experiences, how does that affect how you see current events? We're seeing far too much of the same today that my grandparents experienced. It's just disheartening to know that they went through and suffered how much they did and that some progress has been made, but certainly not enough progress. Cynthia Campbell-Moten, a retired administrator now in her 80s, has lived in New York City her entire life. She recalls that when she was a young girl, her parents loved to take the family on road trips to visit cities across the U.S. They also regularly spent summers at a comfortable, welcoming, black-owned resort in upstate New York. Her memories of what happened during those road trips remain vivid. She shared how the Negro Motorist Green Book was part of her family's travels. It was my father who used it. I, I was not aware of it until, I mean, until he used it. We had not done that kind of travel. So you grew up in New York, and your father loved to travel. He did. He did. And, you know, he made sure that there were places for us to go. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but, you know, now I realize that it wasn't as easy as it seemed. What have you realized afterwards? What part did you realize weren't as easy as it seemed? I first thought it was around 1950, but I think it might have even been earlier, maybe 48 or 49. We decided, my parents decided to drive to Chicago. And we stopped overnight in, in several cities. And I think the first couple of nights we found that we there were no hotels available. So my father then referred to the Green Book and we went to places that were listed in the Green Book, which were clean, fairly comfortable places, but not places that we would have chosen had we had a choice. I mean, they were not first class or we, we understood that was a situation. When we got to Chicago, I think that my father's expectations were greater than they had been going through these other places. So he went to into a hotel, a downtown hotel, I guess it was, and made reservations. And when he brought my mother and myself in, they said they never saw him before. Although he had made the reservations in person. Yes, yes, he had. But the thing is, he, he could pass for Italian or something like that. And we were a little bit, should I say, less Italian-looking, say. They told him right to his face that they didn't know what he was talking about. How do you think that made him feel? Well, I'm sure it made him feel very angry because, I mean, he was not a person that accepted second-class citizenship. He found a, a, a nice hotel in, in the Green Book. I can't remember the name of it anymore. Now, I'm not sure if it was on Cottage Grove Avenue, but I remember Cottage Grove Avenue. It was as nice a hotel as, you know, we would have expected. What I'm trying to say, we didn't feel like we were being deprived by being there. So, Cynthia, driving across the U.S., your father found places to stay that were serviceable but always welcoming, right? But when you arrived in Chicago, you found a first-class place. 
Yeah. I think in these other cities that they didn't really have black-owned hotels. And I think that it, we might have even stayed in, in a rooming house. Or, and everybody went out of their way to make us comfortable. But, it, it you know, it wasn't the same. It wasn't what we were used to, really. But in Chicago, in my opinion, we were as comfortable as we would have been in, at any hotel. And what was the trip back to New York like? Well, my father decided that he wasn't going to go through that again. So we went to Canada and we drove back through Canada. And wherever we stopped in Canada, we had no problem at all. And as I said, my father was, he was a realist, but he wasn't comfortable having to use the Green Book, I'm sure. So in addition to traveling to Chicago, where else did you travel? We traveled to a, a, a resort in Orange County, which at the time seemed like it was very far away. Now I realize Orange County isn't that far. It was in Cuddybackville, and it was called Paradise Farm, and it was run by a couple, Sally and Jimmy Walker, and it was, uh, you know, a perfect place. Whatever I wanted, they had. And it was black-owned and black-run, and all the people there were black. That's exactly right. We went there so often that we, we had a cabin or whatever it was that was named Campbell or something like that. So we went several times, and it was a very, it was a very comfortable experience. That's typical of what I found out about the black resorts like Idlewild, uh, Fox Lake, and Oak Bluffs. The same people came back year after year after year because you were getting away from the prejudice in society. You didn't have to be observed by white people. You were surrounded by other black people, so you could simply be yourself. Did you ever encounter segregation in New York City? We went to Schraff's, which at the time, it was a, an upscale luncheonette, I would call it. And my mother and I, we went some, I don't know, to the, the theater or someplace, and we ended up at Schraff's. And we sat down, and we, we were still waiting for somebody to take our order. And they, they just made believe we weren't there. They just ignored you like you were invisible? <laughs> That's exactly right. And the thing is, you know, we, my mother was not a person who took that kind of thing very lightly. So we sat there for a long time until it got uncomfortable for us. So, but, you know, we were not going to leave it, you know, immediately and make and make it easy for them. We tried to stay and, and uh, make it as difficult for them as possible. So, But, you know, we were aware that there were places in New York that, what should I say, did not encourage us to come. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. You've lived through this period. Cynthia, what do you think when you see some of today's events? I, I get very, very sad. Very, very sad. We're once again trying to prove to people that we're human. I mean, it's just unimaginable, really unimaginable. A lot of things have gotten better. There are more 
jobs available for, for educated black people. But, you know, what's happened is that the people who could not believe that a, a black person could be president, I think they decided that that's the last time that that's going to happen. And and it, they're trying to retrench, I guess. But the thing is, you know, for years we we never had any black history in our in our textbooks, and we finally got it. Now they're trying to erase it. It's just, I, it's unbelievable, really. I mean, things have not have improved in a smooth incline. You know, it's one step forward and and two steps back, or three steps forward and two steps back. So, are you optimistic about the future? I'm optimistic because I have a lot of confidence in the younger generation. It's not only the younger people of color, but it's the, the younger generation in general. The fact that gay people are, are accepted, I mean, and it's because young people, they've had the opportunity to meet all kinds of people and to work with people and to go to school with people, and they realize that it's all what they were taught is, isn't true. And I think that they are, they're standing up for what's right. I mean, in the, the George Floyd protests, they were not all black, that's for sure. That was, that was a, an indication of people understanding what was going on. So last question for you. Do you think a green book is needed today or something like it? One thing that desegregation caused was uh, black businesses, black hotels and, and restaurants and failed the people they wanted to, to see what you know what was out there and give themselves new kinds of experiences. I think that if any kind of a book is necessary, it's to advertise the excellence of black businesses because they you know black businesses have made a comeback and they are uh, they're in need of of business. And the thing is, I think only local people are aware of them. So a book that would talk about the excellence of black business, I think, would would help. Since recording the podcast, Janae and I have shared our thoughts and reflections on the people we met, the stories we heard, the insights we gained, and all the things that still resonate within us. Janae, what have you taken away from our experience, having recorded the podcast and done the 2021-mile road trip? I have taken away so many lessons. I'm a changed person. I have been reflecting on the very long legacy of thriving in the face of deep, deep systemic adversity and oppression. And as a person who is of a different generation, learning this history, but still feeling like we're living through it and seeing what's happening now, so much of this racism is still present while we still deal with the intergenerational impacts of the racism that the previous generations fought against. I sit here finding myself in awe. The powerful parts of our history are ours. They are ours to share with each other and to pass down to future generations. And that is why I really deeply have loved hearing all of these stories and I carry them with me every day. One of the things that I always recall from our trip was your use of one word, and you used it more than one time. That was the word grace. What did you mean by that word? An inner peace of knowing that you are a whole and worthy human, despite the structures of the world telling you that you are not. Grace also means knowing that you have a place in your Black community that goes back generations, that gives you strength 
in the moment, even in the hardest moments, and that allows you to believe that a better future is possible. I remember you used it quite strategically after we were talking about memories of Stuckies. <laughs> Driving along the road and seeing those Stuckies and wanting those pecan rolls. And people recall that their parents said, we pack our own food. And they would keep driving right past the Stuckies. But yet, when all of us recall the day that we learned why we couldn't stop at Stuckies, everybody laughed. Yes. I was surprised by how much laughter there was listening to folks of a different generation uh, telling these stories of being with their parents or being with their friends. And it, it, it's almost as if we are laughing at the absurdity of it, because let's face it, racism and segregation are absurd. They are absurd. But being able to come out on the other side and to look back with laughter and still find joy in moments, if that's not grace, what is? I agree. And I find that the strength of the people the things they took away from the adversity was very important. Hank Saunders saying his mother had a peculiar confidence in her children. Beautiful. And she did. Dr. Evelyn Nettles recalling how her grandmother raced in and pulled her from the counter when she sat down as an innocent little girl to order ice cream. The love that was in that running in there and Hank Saunders' mother coming out when the man was trying to grab him out of the car and saying, you know, you leave my son alone. You think of all of the ways that black parents protected their children while simultaneously trying to shield them. And when I think of one statement that just keeps echoing, it's Brian Stevenson's memory of his grandfather and how in front of white people, his grandfather became something else. Although he wanted to model strong, confident behavior, he recognized that in order to protect his beloved grandson, he had to sometimes become somebody he was not. That reminds me of the story that Crystal Churchwell told us when we met with her at the Frist Museum in Nashville. She told the story that her father would get on the bus in East Nashville, which was the black neighborhood, and the bus would travel all the way across Nashville, stopping in Belmede, where they would drop off all of the women who were domestic servants in the houses that lived there. And the last stop would be at Vanderbilt University, where her father was a student. And during this bus ride, the women on the bus every day would say, oh, darling, we're so proud of you for being a student at Vanderbilt. We believe in you. We are rooting for you. And when he would get off every day at Vanderbilt, he was carrying not only the encouragement of his community, but also this sense that they were expecting him, they were hoping for him to become something greater than they could ever have imagined for themselves. We captured the lived experiences of people during this road trip, the horror, the meanness, the difficulty. But I think every one of those people knew that if they survived, they would go back to a place where they were cared about, loved, and sustained. And that gave them the ability to move on and not be held hostage by this mean past. It's really in honor of African Americans all across this country, black people all across America, that we were able to take this road trip and hear these stories, capture these stories, so that those voices 
those lived experiences won't be lost. Janae, what have been your takeaways from our trip that you've applied to your life or that live in you? That it is important to know and to understand the people you came from, the community that you came from, and what you have to contribute in the place where you are to continue the legacy of goodness and greatness and to make sure that you tell those stories, that you tell those stories not only to your own children, but to everyone. So much of this history, so much of our history, Black history, is not readily accessible. It is whitewashed. It's being banned now. We're not even allowed to tell the stories of history. So we need to keep talking about it if we want people to know that it was real. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted there to be a record of these stories and voices of experience. The podcast is one. But to sit down and see those words, that wisdom, those experiences on paper that can be carried forth from one generation to the next was really important to me. So many stories about the motels, restaurants, and other establishments listed in the Negro Motorist Green Book have been ignored, repressed, even lost. But the stories in my podcast and book can not only be heard and read today, but should it become necessary in the future, can be rediscovered like the works of so many black historical figures who recorded their experiences coping with and living through decades of legal and social repression in the U.S. African Americans never lost sight of the promise of the American dream. Even when the road was hard, the pursuit of it complex, sometimes dangerous. As both acts of resistance and resilience, we created a world in the face of segregation and Jim Crow that replicated the American dream. Making this history more widely known gives context and understanding not just to the civil rights movement, but also to what we see, hear, and feel today. I often think of a statement I read years ago. We, African Americans, delivered the promise of the Constitution to all Americans. We made America deliver that promise. Keeping the freedoms of that promise remains an ongoing journey across the United States. To me, that will be my greatest takeaway from Driving the Green Book. For this bonus episode of my Driving the Green Book podcast series, I want to thank Dr. Dolores Mercedes Franklin and Mrs. Cynthia Campbell Moten for coming to the studio and sharing their stories of resistance and resilience as well as their perspectives on history and current events. Thanks also to my dear friend and associate producer, Janae Woods Weber, for joining me in the studio to share with our listeners all of the insights, wisdom, joy, 
and grace that we not only learned on the journey, but that continue to enrich our lives. Listen to the full catalog of the Driving the Green Book podcast on your favorite listening app. Go deeper into the road trip, first-person stories, as well as their historical and social context by also picking up a copy of Driving the Green Book, a road trip through the living history of Black resistance, wherever fine books are sold. This bonus episode of the podcast was produced by Holly Hutchins and Adam Cecil of Macmillan Podcasts, a division of Macmillan Publishers, and myself, Alvin Hall. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.